Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 45. Last week, I wrapped up with Azorkan IV, who was the last pharaoh of the 22nd dynasty, which of course gets me to the 23rd. But this isn't the typical transition. The 23rd dynasty coexisted with the 22nd for a number of years. So, in order to cover it, even from a high level, I need to back up a bit. In this case, over 100 years to the year 880 BC in a ruler named Harsias. This dynasty was dominated by Berber Libyans and was centered around the southern portion of the country. Therefore, they would have no direct contact with the Israelites since the Tanis rulers controlled the territory between. And I know I said I wasn't going to dive too deep into this dynasty. So consider this episode to be a shallow foray into the history of that time. And with that, let's get started. Harsias was likely the high priest of Amun, and probably inherited this position from his father. And remember, this was a time when the priesthood held considerable power. Now, in all fairness, not all researchers agree that he was a high priest, with some arguing he could have been a lower priest. The hows, whens, and whys of his rule are a bit of a mystery, as are his interactions with the rulers of the 22nd dynasty. It does appear, though, that he ruled over Thebes for at least some of the time. He would reign for about 20 years. When he finally died, he was buried in a coffin originally intended for Ramses II's sister. Harsias was succeeded by Teklot II, which, as you could surmise, took his name from the 22nd dynasty's Teklot I. And the second was also the high priest of Amun, who took the throne around 845 BC. Now, there is the theory that Teklot II ruled as part of the 22nd dynasty, having succeeded from Azorkan II. But most researchers don't think this theory aligns with reality. Instead, he's thought to have ruled Middle and Upper Egypt, Teklot was merely a priest for a short period of time under Azorkan II before he proclaimed himself as king, most likely towards the end of Azorkan's reign. And for clarity, Teklot II was not related to Teklot I, and probably assumed the name hoping it would convey some authority. Teklot II would end up controlling both Middle and Upper Egypt during the last three years of Azorkan II's reign. But he wasn't done. He would remain as ruler for another 20 to 23 years. These years coincided with Shoshek III's reign in Lower Egypt. In his 11th year, Pedubast I led a revolt in the area around Thebes. Teklot sent his son, a man who would later be known as Arzarkand III, down the Nile to Thebes to put down the rebels. And he did. Afterwards, the son would declare himself the new high priest of Amun. There's no sense letting a good victory go to waste, and Arzorkan leveraged his momentum to grab this title. But the Thebans were turning into the new Nubians, as just a few years later, four to be exact, a new revolt was afoot. And this time, Arzorkan's troops were driven from Thebes by Pedubast. Why this rebel leader wasn't dispatched the first time is unclear. And this time, neither side was going down easily. 
the rebellion turned into a prolonged conflict for the control of Thebes, lasting for about 27 years into the reign of both Teklot II and Pitubastes' successors. I'll get to the conclusion of the fight when I cover Teklot II's successor, but before getting to him, a quick trip through the history of Pitubast I. Pitubast was of Libyan descent and overtook control of Thebes around 835 BC. At the height of his power, he would rule not only the area around Thebes, but also the western desert oasis. His main conflict with Teklot appears to have been who was the actual high priest of Amun. So, the civil war in Middle and Upper Egypt was a religious battle. Other than that, not much is known about him. He was succeeded by his son, Ayuput I. Most likely, Ayuput served for an undetermined period as his father's co-regent prior to his father's death. Ayuput would rule for about 15 years. What's unclear is if any of these years were independent. So, it was either his father or him that was succeeded by Shoshek VI, who would reign for about six years. And, just to make it confusing, apparently the high priest of Amun during his reign was a different man named Teklot. Who's on first? Who knows? And he may be the only one who knows. Shoshek VI was not initially known by this name. Before 1993, and that's A.D., he was referred to as Shoshek III. Both three and six are names assigned to him by modern researchers, and it's kind of like the era before highway exit signs were numbered by mile markers. As researchers uncovered earlier rulers with the same name, they found out that their previous numbering system had to be reworked. Shoshek VI would rule until he was defeated and ousted from power by Azur Khan. Well, it wasn't really Azur Khan, but he was the ruler of Upper Egypt at the time. It was actually Orzakhan's brother, General Bakinta of Herakiopolis who conquered Thebes. After his defeat, Shoshek disappeared from history. In my mind, Azur Khan had learned his lesson and had the rebel leader executed. And that gets us back to Teklot number two. Well, really his successor, Orzurkan III. Unlike so many of the past rulers, he was actually his predecessor's son. But that's not all. He was also the grandson of his namesake, Orzurkan II. And just like that, we're back to rulers taking their grandfather's names. At least there is some consistency. Such is the typical tale in an intermediate period. Prior to assuming the throne, he served as the high priest of Amun at Thebes. He would rule for a total of 28 years, perhaps dying when he was an astounding 80 or so years old. The last five or so years of his rule were with his son, Teklot III, acting as his co-regent. Of course, this typically means that Teklot would succeed him and this was most likely the last co-regency of the sort in ancient Egypt. More on him in a bit. Azorkan's rule coincided with those of Shoshek IV, Pami, and Shoshek V of the 22nd dynasty. And knowing this allows us to align his reign with the history of ancient Israel. When he reigned, it was after Solomon's death and Israel's division into two kingdoms, 
Judah in the south, and Israel in the north. All of this was just prior to the Hebrews being overrun by the Assyrians, which gets me to Teklot III, who would assume the throne probably as an old man, at least considered old for the times he lived in. He would rule for around 13 years between 774 and 759 BC. Like many of the previous rulers, prior to assuming the throne as Pharaoh, he would be the high priest of Amun. And the only other things known about his reign, well, somewhat known, are the potential names of a few high court officials, including his treasurer and vizier. In a papyrus, these people are listed as are their successors. And, as it turns out, many of the positions appear to have been inheritable, passing from father to oldest son. Teklot number three was succeeded by his younger brother, Radumun, which is a bit surprising given that Teklot had three identified sons, including one known to be the high priest of Amun. But they did not inherit the throne. This suggests, though it's not really known, that all three of his sons preceded him in death. As you would likely be correct in assuming, when Radumun took the throne, he too was rather old, and he would only rule for a couple of years. In the 23rd dynasty, by this point, especially given that Egypt remained divided, and several rulers each ruled for a short period, while the 23rd dynasty was falling apart. As for Radumun, not much is actually known about him. Shocking, I know. To the point that we don't even know where he was buried. Soon after his death, the Middle and Upper Kingdom quickly fragmented into several minor city-states under the control of various local leaders. Since there were many, and their territories each were extremely confined, I'll spare you the little that is known about each, and you can probably guess what happened next. True then, just as much as it is true now, power vacuums are filled quickly. In this case, it would be Pi, a Nubian, aka Cushite, from the 25th dynasty. But I can't get to him just yet, as that would mean I would skip the 24th, which should be really quick as it only lasted 12 years and two rulers. So to the last of the second dozen, I go. The 24th dynasty was a short-lived group of pharaohs who had their capital at Sais in the western Nile Delta, and given their location, it would be a safe assumption that they were ethnically Libyans. But much of the evidence of this existence tends to show they were Egyptian. More on that in a minute. The first ruler of the 24th was a prince known as Tefnicht, who probably reigned from about 732 to 725 BC, so seven years. His grandfather was likely a priest of Amun, most likely indicating he was Egyptian, or at least somewhat Egyptian. During his reign, Tefnicht would form an alliance with other minor kings of the Delta region in order to conquer Middle and Upper Egypt, which was under the growing control of the Nubian king Pi. While doing this, he would capture and unify many of the cities of the Delta region. This had the effect of making Tefnicht significantly more powerful than any of his predecessors in either the 22nd or 23rd dynasties. His efforts would gain him control of territory not only in the western Delta, 
but also southward, capturing the city of Memphis, to the point that his troops would lay siege to the city of Heracleopolis, which at the time was an ally of the Kushite king Pi. During Tefnik's rise to power and growth in territory, Nimlot, the ruler of the city of Hermopolis, defected from his loyalty to Pi to that of Tefnikt, and with that, he got Pi's attention. Pi would send his Nile-based navy downstream to stop the northern kingdom's advance, with Memphis being recaptured by Pi. But naval moves weren't his only strategy. Pi would pick off Tefnik's allies one at a time, to the point that Tefnik would become a lonely, isolated ruler. After this, Tefnik would surrender to Pi, and the Kushite ruler would return to his native Nubia, never again making the trip to Lower Egypt. But, and probably due to his timely surrender, Tefnik would remain as the ruler for a smaller territory on the western side of the Nile Delta. And, now that Pi had returned to the distant Nubian capital, there was a bit of a vacuum in the Delta region. Tefnik would take advantage of the situation and declare himself to be king, but he was careful in not grabbing too much power in attracting the renewed attention of Pi. More on all of this in a minute. Tefnik would be succeeded by his son Bekreinef, who would rule for a brief five years, beginning around 725 BC. Manitha recounted two events during his reign. The first is that a lamb, yes, a baby sheep, spoke and said that Egypt would be conquered by the Assyrians. I'll get to the second event in a minute. First, a couple of other things he's remembered for. He's given credit for a law concerning contracts, which provided for a procedure to absolve debts. Bekreinef also attempted to initiate some sort of land reform, but this did not succeed. And he may have had contact with the contemporary Greeks, dating to his reign, are scarab seals with his Egyptian name, one of which was found in a contemporary Greek grave on the Isle of Acacia, which is near Naples, Italy. Here, the Greeks of his day had a colony. As an aside, and generally now believed to be a tale of woefully misstated times, the Roman historian Tacitus mentions that many Greek and Roman writers thought Bekreinef had had contact with Moses. Now, of course, the two are generally believed to have existed with several centuries between their lives. Manetho's second event was that Bekreinef was captured by Shabaiku, a king of the 25th dynasty, who then executed Bekreinef by having him burned at the stake. Somewhat supporting this is that other sources show a king by the same name from the Kushite kingdom, who came to control the area once ruled by the 24th dynasty. But modern researchers believe there may have been a bit of fluff added to the story. However he met his end, the dynasty did fall to the upsurging Nubians, which gets me to the 25th dynasty, which is sometimes referred to as the Nubian dynasty, and a bit rarer, the Kushite kingdom. This dynasty was essentially a series of kings who were from the kingdom of Kush. Today, this area is southern Egypt and northern Sudan. They would control, in some cases all, 
and the other some of Egypt between 744 and 656 BC. It was during this period, around 740 BC, that what used to be Israel was overtaken by Assyria. When the Kushites reunited Egypt by ousting the previous northern dynasties, Egypt became its former self, at least in the size of the territory, a size that had not been seen since the New Kingdom. And the Nubians didn't come in and try to change everything. Instead, they reaffirmed the ancient Egyptian religious traditions, temples, and got as granular as even renewing the art of the ancients. They did import a few Kushite traditions, but the cultural exchange went both ways, as even pyramids would be built in Nubia, the first constructed there since the Middle Kingdom, over 1,000 years before. And before starting the history of the dynasty with Pi, I'm going to spend a minute or so covering his predecessor so that we can understand how he came to achieve all that he did. And that predecessor was a leader known as Kasha, Kasha, while ruling, installed his daughter to a high post in the sect of Amun, a position known as God's Wife of Amun, located at Thebes. In doing so, he cemented the Kushite control of the Upper and Middle Egyptian territories. Many other religious and political moves helped him to maintain his control over the region, but just to be sure, he also maintained a military presence in Thebes just in case the many rulers from Lower Egypt got a little ambitious and decided to try to take the city. But they didn't. Kasha would die sometime around 744 BC to be succeeded by Pi. It's unclear if the two sequential rulers were related. Pi would end up ruling for about 30 years, all during the growing power and influence of Assyria. While ruling both Nubia and Upper Egypt, Pi took notice of the persistent skirmishes between the numerous rulers of the lower portion of the country. So, what's an ambitious leader to do? Well, he began a slow expansion. Like I mentioned several minutes ago, Tefnicht, who ruled a portion of the Delta region, allied with the other local kings and persuaded Pi's ally, a one-king Nimlot of Hermopolis, to defect to the Lower Kingdom's side. After receiving the support, Tefnicht sent an army of allies south and besieged Herakiopolis. The city's king, Pefjawibast, backed up by local Nubian generals, appealed to Pi for help. And of course, Pi did. Pi sent an invasion force to Middle and Lower Egypt, quickly regaining the territory. He then sent the army north while he regained Heracleopolis, also regaining the cities of Hermopolis and Memphis. The various leaders from the area would all surrender in the end. Tefnik would hide out on an island in the delta, but would eventually surrender via a handwritten letter. And with that, Pi went home, this time traveling the Nile upstream on a boat, a journey that took about 39 days. And since he was no longer physically present in the country, and most likely owing to Pi recognizing the difficulties in maintaining a tight grip over a spread out territory, he would rule the territory around Lower Egypt rather loosely. The local rulers were mostly allowed to remain, and free to rule as they chose, 
as long as they remained loyal to the Kushites. Pi would be buried in a tomb next to a pyramid in Nubia. He was succeeded by his son Shabaiku, who would rule for nine years between 714 and 705 BC. Not much is known about him, except he did probably extradite a fleeing foreign leader back to Sargon of Assyria, not to be confused with the Sargon of Akkad, aka Sargon the Great, who ruled about 1,000 years prior. Shabaiku would be followed by his nephew, Shabaka, who would rule for 15 years. During his reign, he would move to further centralize the government's control over the far-flung land. In doing so, he would relocate the capital of the empire back to Thebes. This centralized control helped to stave off the advancing Assyrians. He would further consolidate power by appointing his son as the high priest of Amun. Other than this, and the various contents of his Nubian pyramid tomb, not much is really known about him. He would be succeeded by a man who was either his nephew, cousin, or younger brother, Taharka. And how Taharka came to power is a bit of a mystery. While the usual route of assuming the throne is by the death of your predecessor, there is some thought that Shabaka was ousted from the throne. And given the writing structure on many monuments, Taharka may not have been the next in line for the throne. Either way, no matter how it occurred, he was the next to rule. Taharka would take the throne in 690 BC and rule for about 26 years, which would put us around 664. By some accounts, he was the son of Pi, but others list him as Pi's grandson. Either way, ruling authority remained in the family. Given that his three predecessors had reunited the kingdom, Toharka was set up for a prosperous reign. But there still is the looming threat from the Assyrians. When he was about 20 years old, perhaps before he assumed the throne, his forces engaged the Assyrians, led by their king Sennacherib. This engagement occurred at Eltake, probably located near the present-day city of Dan, Israel. According to passages found in both 2 Kings chapter 19 and Isaiah chapter 37, the interference from Egyptian troops slowed the Assyrians' advance on Jerusalem. Towards the end of the passage in 2 Kings, we're told that, quoting, the angel of the Lord set out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When morning dawned, they were all dead bodies. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria left, went home, and lived at Nineveh." End quote. Herodotus, the 5th century BC Greek historian, wrote something similar, describing a divinely controlled disaster destroying the Assyrian army. In his polytheistic words, he wrote that the god sent, quoting, once again, a multitude of field mice which devoured all the quivers and the bowstrings of the enemy and ate the thongs by which they managed their shields." End quote. It's thought that the Egyptian leader mentioned in these passages, a King Tiraka of Ethiopia, is the same as King Taraka of Cush slash Nubia. And this isn't just based on the similarities of the names, 
but also the dating of the historic record along with similarities found in both the Old Testament and Egyptian accounts of the events. It's thought, at least in the Egyptian records, that Taraka's display of military prowess in this battle convinced the Assyrians to leave Egypt alone, which in turn led to a period of peace in Egypt. But that wasn't the only factor in the country's renewed prosperity. In his sixth year, the harvest was so bountiful that it was worthy of inscriptions, and the renewed economic fortunes of the country led to increased construction of temples and pyramids. But the Assyrians weren't going to go away so easily. They would invade Egypt around 677 BC, just like the Lamb said. But this seems to have been an attempt to merely push the Egyptians back from the Levant to a place known as the Brook of Egypt, probably at the Wadi al-Arish on the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula. A full-scale invasion would occur three years later, in 674, but the Egyptians would emerge victorious in this conflict. The Assyrians, led by their king Esarhaddon, would attack again another three years later, and this time would make it as far as Memphis, capturing that city, and in doing so, took many members of the royal family as prisoners, including the pharaoh's own son. Taharqa would escape by fleeing south while the Assyrians established a regional government led by Necho I. The Assyrian king then departed and headed back to his capital, but he died before making it home. His son, Ashurbanipal, would become their new leader and would attack Tarhaka again, this time driving the Kushite even further back, all the way to Thebes. It was here that Tarhaka would die in 664 BC, succeeded by Tatamani, who was not his son, but the son of his predecessor, Shabaka. Tarhaka was buried at Nuri, in what is today the northern Sudan. And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up the history of the 25th dynasty with Tantamani. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week... Help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.